Welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, episode 21. Welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people who want to figure out how to embrace their quirky, fabulous, highly sensitive nature, live big, not feeling like they need to hide, and somehow, in the midst of all of that, stay physically, mentally, and emotionally healthy in the process. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess on the show, and in today's episode, we're going to continue the conversation I got started a couple of months ago more on the reason behind the long pause in a bit. Anyway, we left off talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Really quickly, Maslow was a psychologist who organized a theory about what is required for a human being to become fully realized. Some might call this the pathway to enlightenment. In his mind, in order to successfully reach the top of one's potential, one must get a set of needs met. He organized this whole concept in the form of a pyramid. The idea is that there are some base needs that need to be met before one can advance to the next step. So much like with a pyramid, you can't just start at the tippy top. You have to kind of work your way up, and each level that you climb gets you closer to the top, and it funnels itself to this tipping point, and that point is what one might call enlightenment. So each set of needs that is met frees up the person to go up one more level. Now, up until this point, what we had covered so far were physical needs. So his idea was that there are these baseline needs that if are not met, you don't even bother. Moving right on up is safety. So if people don't feel safe, they aren't really going to be that concerned with the next level, which is a sense of belonging, feeling like they have good relationships. And then finally, once they have a sense of belonging, they can move into the realm of self-esteem, feeling like they have uh, prestige or really being comfortable with their place in a larger sense. And today, the next level would be to talk about cognitive needs. Before I get to that, though, I because the episode that we're doing today is coming after a regu- relatively long pause, there's a lot I want to catch up on. So in the hopes of not making you feel like I'm sort of bouncing around haphazardly, Uh, I'm first going to give you a brief outline so you have a roadmap for what I'm going to discuss. Um, I find that helps provide a little assurance that I'm not merely an absent-minded professor, but am, in fact, capable of staying on point as long as I'm properly motivated. (laughs) Okay, so first, um, I'm going to do a really quick review of each of the needs. I know I did a sort of quick bullet point list, but I'm going to give a few more tidbits of information again because it has been a while. Second, I'm going to tell you a bit about what's been happening in my life. Um, I want to do that because the events that occurred and which led to my long lag in updating my podcast were actually a perfect example of what can happen when a person is not adhering to her hierarchy of needs, especially when it comes to being a highly sensitive person. So it's kind of neat that even though I needed to go on this sort of long pause because a number of things transpired then sort of accumulated together just to overwhelm my system, If that was going to happen, what a great opportunity for it to happen right smack dab in the middle of one's conversation about hierarchy of needs. Sigh. So once I go through those things, then I'm going to move into the primary focus of today, which is once again, cognitive needs. 
So to get started, really quickly, once again, the levels that we've covered so far were physical needs, which if you don't recall, physical needs were food, water, and rest. If you don't have enough food in your belly, if you don't get enough water in your system, and if you can't get any sleep, Maslow's vision or sense was, you know, good luck caring about anything else. No one cares about enlightenment if you can't even get food in your belly. Now, I know there's plenty of stories about the Buddha, you know, going off and starving himself and going through all of these different versions of transcendence and what have you. We're talking about your average Joe who's just trying to figure out how to make a go of it. If you can't get fed, you are simply not going to be all that concerned about self-actualization. So if you can get those needs met, met, the next level would be your sense of safety. So as an example, let's say you're someone who is regularly getting fed, but you live in a war-torn country. So you're not in prison. You are able to go to a kind of market but there's a sense of insecurity. At any moment, maybe someone will, you know, a bomb could go off. You don't feel like you're safe. Or perhaps you live in a country that isn't war-torn, but you live in a community within a relatively safe country that you don't feel safe in. So perhaps a hard neighborhood that you don't feel comfortable just going off into like jogging in the middle of the night. So if you don't feel safe, once again, it's kind of hard to move into the next ring, which would be a sense of belonging. So that third level is belonging in the sense of feeling like you have good relationships, knowing where you stand in those relationships, you know, really feeling like you're connected, you're part of something bigger than yourself, and you know where you stand in that picture. And then the next level up was self-esteem. So self-esteem, it wasn't just like, I feel so good about myself. It's more a sense of... Um, I almost want to say prestige. Like you go into your office and you feel like your, your role is important. You have some level of esteem with your colleagues. It doesn't have to, the content of whatever role you have isn't super important. I think it's more important about how you internalize your own self and how others give you feedback. So I don't know. Let's say that I was a very, I was a professor at a prestigious university, but all of the other professors sort of laughed at my topic because I'm the head or chair of the department of underwater basket weaving. And all the rest of the professors are like, must be, you know, what weirdo with you with your, yeah, you have publishing papers on underwater basket. Okay. So even though theoretically I should feel a sense of esteem, my colleagues don't reflect that back to me. So my sense of esteem might reduce. And or maybe it's just simply that I'm self-conscious about the fact that I'm not teaching, you know, I'm not a mad scientist teaching about science, but I'm teaching about underwater basket weaving. No offense to any in underwater basket weavers out there. But so a sense of esteem, it's, it's internal as well as external. There's a sense of like a core sense of I have worth and a sense that others are mirroring that back. Interestingly enough, those four, four, yes, four levels are considered by Maslow to be sort of the prerequisite needs. In other words, if any one of those needs aren't met, it's almost like I'm lacking something. They're not about growth. They're about baseline needs. And as it happens, these were sort of the areas that I was troubled by. And therefore, when trying to move into some of these other ranks later on, I wasn't successful. And more on that in a second. So yeah, today we're going to talk about cognitive needs. So really quickly, cognitive needs, 
before I, I, again, I promised that I would sort of be talking about myself and then kind of coming back here, but to give you a teaser, uh, his meaning of cognitive needs are in the realm of, you know, having knowledge and understanding both of oneself and of their environment, having a sense of curiosity, a desire to explore, uh, and it's the beginning of piecing together a sense of meaning in one's life. So that's where we're headed. <laughs> now, to give you a little bit of background into what's been happening in the last couple of months, it might help to actually summarize what's been happening in the last year. So in the year 2017, I met my current partner. Well, re-met him. We actually met technically in the third grade and then, you know, knew of each other the whole time and didn't actually start dating until, well, this last year. So in the year 2017, uh, we got together. I moved into his place. I lost 60% of my income. He and I sold a condo. We moved into a house. We renovated a house. We went to Hawaii. We got engaged. We came back to a whole mess of family drama. And I got offered a number of jobs that I then transitioned into. So any one of those things is something that's worth marking. Having all of them happen within a year is, I would argue, pretty intense. So those were all of the things that were sort of building up and sort of expanding out into my little slice of reality. Right around October, so that's when I stopped, you know, recording any podcasts of any sort. And again, that's so, we had gone to Hawaii, I came back, and I had every intention of picking back up where I had left off, and I just couldn't. It was the most bizarre thing. I, it's not like I, I was uh, sick, I wasn't physically ill, but something was just off. And it felt to me like the beginning stages of depression. Interestingly enough, I've felt this before, but in the past, what I've done is I've just continued to push and do the work. So it's like, well, tough cookies, Leah, you're fine. You can keep doing this. But whenever I did that in the past, I would push myself to such a, a degree that I'd get things like chronic fatigue and eventually slammed with depression to such an extent that it was very difficult to even function because once those two things were in place, I wouldn't be able to get pretty any, like any sleep. And if you're a highly sensitive person, you know better than anyone how important sleep is. When we are well-rested, we can, you know, you could, hello, Madam President. But if we're not well-rested, my dog is a higher-functioning human being than I am when we haven't had sleep. So once all of those things have started to spiral into place, I'm getting anxiety attacks, I'm getting panic attacks. It's not good. So these were the beginning stages, and I had already experienced what it was like to go through those beginning stages, ignore them, push forward, and then collapse. So this was the first time in my life when I experienced that and then thought, maybe I should try something different. But I needed someone to validate that for me. So I reached out to people that I respect and admire, and among those individuals was a woman who is a business coach. And she and I were talking about this experience I was having, and I just 
as I said to her, I can't figure out, I, I have no creative juices left. I can't seem to write a blog. I can't seem to record a podcast. I mean, I'm showing up at work every day. I'm not calling in sick. I'm doing what I need to do, but the struggle is real. And she was kind enough to give me this analogy. She said, uh, you know, it might be useful to you, for you to consider the cheetah. So the cheetah, as most know, is the fastest land animal uh, we know of, at least, so far. They can clock somewhere between 60 to 65 miles an hour. But they can only do that for a few seconds at a time. And after having done that, this is what I didn't know, they need to recover for at least a half an hour. Now, if you consider that they're only doing it for a few seconds and that they need to then recover for a half an hour, that's a pretty hefty ratio. If they don't recover, if they decide, nah, screw it, I'm going to keep going after the antelope, I'm hungry, they will quite literally break. Their muscles will tear or a bone will break. Their bodies just aren't designed to sustain that kind of pace for long periods. It needs to recover. So what she then told me was, highly sensitive people are in many respects like cheetahs. If they are well cared for, they are capable of being tremendously productive, highly creative, and exceptionally empathic. However, in using those gifts, they also need a bit more TLC. They need to be able to recover. And what she was saying to me is, I think this is your body telling you, my little cheetah, that you should probably sit back and recover. So I did. I went way, way back. I was flirting with these cognitive needs, curiosity, building a practice, building you know, a, a blog and series and building a podcast series. I was doing all these great things. I was excited about it. But as it happened, these basic needs weren't being met consistently. So I decided to scale way, way back. And to a certain extent, follow my own advice that I give my private clients and those that I teach when facilitating classes, uh, basically take my own advice. So... I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to eat healthy food, I'm going to move my body, and I'm going to sleep. These are the primary goals for now. I did that for several weeks. And I did notice at a certain point that, okay, I'm starting to feel like there's some stability here. This is good. I did mention that I had scaled way, way back. So what that also means is that I was not being as diligent as perhaps I should have been with, say, my finances. I was paying for some very pretty food and I wasn't <laughs> paying attention to the price tag. So then I had to kind of go back in and that's moving up into that second tier, that sense of safety, feeling like I have security. So I looked at my finances. I started being a little bit more deliberate again. I mean, like, Fortunately, I didn't go into massive debt or anything. I don't have a gambling habit. But I, it's like, whoa, I've, I've been careless. I really need to scale this back. I mean, I was dipping into savings and I don't typically do that. So I got that in order, and then that was enough for me to sort of wake up and go, whoa, my relationships are floundering here. And my primary relationship in particular was, this isn't okay. I don't like this at all. This is awful. And all of a sudden now I'm starting to sort of bite. or you know, I'm looking around going, I need help. I want to feel like I I'm, I'm belong, like I'm connected. My poor partner. Uh, he... And he felt the brunt of that. It's like, hey, I'm not getting these basic needs met. You're not meeting them. We aren't meeting them. Ah! It's silly, maybe, but 
once we started having these conversations and I started feeling a little bit more settled, that was then when I could start looking at, okay, well, it's, where's my sense of self-esteem? Which this is actually kind of interesting because I was working on these two things concurrently in some respects and in engaging interpersonally in ways, you know, more assertively, not just with my partner, but at work, being more clear about what I want and getting what I want at work because the people I work with, as it turns out, value me. That gave me the sense of feedback of like, oh, I am a valued member in this community. This is really great. And then that allowed me to feel like, yeah, so I'm going to continue this trajectory of me being really assertive. And then that also helped my sense of being able to uh, assert myself in my relationships, which helped my sense of belonging. So I know that Maslow really has the sense that you need to sort of fill one and then move up. But I do think these things all inform one another. Just as an example, it's kind of hard to meet your physical needs if you don't have enough money in the bank to pay for food. Uh, It's hard to assert yourself in your interpersonal relationships if you don't have a sense of self-esteem. So I do think these go in multiple directions. It's not just one direction up. So got all of that in order. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to feel my faculties come back online. I'm feeling like, whoa, here I am. Oh yeah, and I, I'll even say I was starting to really embrace my inner bitch. Uh, at least that's how I was describing it. Others, when they were giving me feedback, were sort of like, meh. <laughs> yeah, you little pansy, that's bitchy. Sure, honey, you were just being direct, but you can call it whatever you want. And it feels so good. It felt so good, and I'm still sort of coming back alive, and I'm getting this feedback from people around me going, hey, where you been? It's been a while. I was starting to feel like you were looking a little gray there. (laughs) And I started off this year with a bang, uh, as it happens, if you're at all curious, uh, on uh, December 31st, New Year's Eve, I spent it uh, actually doing a lot of crying, but not the crying of woe is me, but the crying of just getting out a lot of emotion. Uh, you fellow highly sensitives, you, I know you've been there. Um, <laughs> so on the first, I thought I'm really going to you know, hone in my practices around taking care of me, not just my physical needs, but really being clear about you know, what do I want? Not just what do I need, what do I want? How do I want my life to look? How can I move in the world in a way that is clear? And as I've started to do that, that clarity has really propelled itself into this new arena, which as it happens is sort of a cognitive space. I've got my curiosity back, my willingness to explore both internally as well as externally, uh, my willingness to sort of take chances and, and desire to get a greater understanding of what's going on in the world around me, not just within me, but outside of me. It's all coming back. And that is today's topic. So how cool, right? I mean, sorry it took two months for me to get here, but I swear it was for a good cause. (laughs) So anyway, when I think about cognitive needs, what comes to my mind, and I don't know if this is what Maslow intended, but it's my interpretation, is meaning. You know, I like to listen to a podcast called The Minimalists, and if you're at all someone who likes to be deliberate with what kinds of material possessions you own and what kinds of commitments you make in life, and you know, you want to be really intentional, I highly recommend that podcast. And they often talk about how we frequently pursue happiness, which may or may not be the right goal. You know, we're 
coached to pursue it, even within the Constitution that we, you know, salute to in the United States. But maybe that's not the right way to go. Instead, perhaps it's more important to live a meaningful life, not just a happy one. Because if you live a meaningful life, in all likelihood, happiness will be a byproduct of that. A simplistic version of this, you know, ice cream makes me happy. But if I continue to only eat ice cream, eventually I'll feel like shit. And in feeling like shit, physically, it will disrupt all of the other branches of our Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, on the other hand, if I make a healthy, nutritious sort of chicken and vegetables and brown rice and I season it well, I will still enjoy it. It makes me happy too. It's not like this food doesn't taste good. But in addition to that, I will feel more energized and alive. And that, by extension, will put me in a position to go and engage in the world feeling more alive, and that will bring me more happiness. So it's sort of the difference between those things. And much the same way, it's not like going after happiness is a problem, but maybe don't make that the primary focus. Instead, make it about meaning. So I've been thinking about this. You know, if one wants to have a sense of like a purpose, of meaning, of, you know, being curious about all of this stuff, you know, what's really, what does that even mean, meaning? As far as I'm concerned, so you're welcome to take this definition, uh, you're also welcome to leave it up to you. I feel like I am living a life that is purposeful when I am, when my actions are in alignment with my values. And for me, I would say my three primary values are my health. My Obviously, I've got a whole podcast that's supposedly about health, <laughs> so I'd better like it. Uh, my relationships and personal growth. Those would be my sort of tippy top of the mountain primary goals. So if at it, on a moment-to-moment basis, whatever action it is that I'm engaging in is satisfying one of those three things. So maybe I'm eating a healthy meal. Or maybe I'm eating ice cream, but with a girlfriend, and that satisfies my relationship goals. Or I'm maybe, you know, maybe I'm watching television because I really needed some time out, and I needed that. And that's also a part of my health. Another way of thinking about this, you know you're meeting your cognitive needs, not necessarily because of what you're doing, but because of why you're doing it. If whatever it is that you are doing, there's room for curiosity in it, you're meeting this this need. Curiosity is really a phenomenal thing. It's the first thing that's brought in when psychologists talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. So like if you want to change your behavior and you're finding that one of the reasons that you're unable is because you have this sort of patterned way of thinking, like I would want to get healthy, but or let's say I want to lose weight, but I can't because I just, I have no willpower. Cognitive behavioral therapy might be a strategy that a psychologist would use to challenge that assumption. Are you sure you have no willpower? In order to effectively engage in that particular branch of psychology, you, the patient, or the person being psycho, psychoanalyzed? Question mark? You, you get what I'm saying. You, the person who's engaging in this level of inquiry, you need to be curious. If there's judgment around it, if you're shaming yourself, it's not as helpful. The same goes for acceptance commitment therapy, which is a similar kind of practice, but in essence, acceptance commitment therapy is much more about first accepting what's happening. It's sort of like when people 
are, become sad or depressed and then they judge themselves for being depressed. I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, perhaps a more tangible example. Again, I, I work with a lot of clients around weight management. So let's imagine that you have just eaten um, all the birthday cake, not just a slice. You just you just went for it. There's you know the fact you ate a lot of cake. Then there's the physical experience. I am uncomfortable now, and those are just appropriate. I ate a bunch of cake, and now I feel uncomfortable. Then there can be this third layer of shame where it's like, what's wrong with me? I'm such a fat pig. Why can't I say no to this? And so on. Acceptance commitment therapy is an attempt at saying to people, that third thing, that that second dart that you threw at yourself, that was unnecessary. Let the shame part go. Instead, be curious. Why did you keep going? Really think about it. What else was going on around you? Was the TV on? Was it like this moment where you're watching a chick flick and you're just enraptured and in the meantime you're eating this chocolate delicious cake and you're just like, oh my god, this is so good. How do you make a good thing better? Just add cake. Well, if that's the case, maybe there's nothing wrong with you. Maybe you're just a human being who was temporarily hypnotized by the television set and you you had an entire cake in front of you. Boo-hoo, you know, big deal. So curiosity is like the, the precursor to being able to heal. In with especially in the realm of behavior change. It's the first thing that is required if you want to have a successful meditation practice. So many people that I talk to about meditation, which is tremendously therapeutic, I've personally felt you know massive changes within myself. And I've also been engaging in the act of meditation for years. But so many people, including myself when I started, think that meditation is about shutting off your thoughts. It's not. It's about watching them. So if you're sitting in a chair and you're just like, okay, I'm going to meditate now. (sighs) Right about now is when your thoughts might start to click back in. You're listening to the hum of the refrigerator and you're thinking, wait a second, did I turn the stove off? Because obviously thinking about the refrigerator leads to thinking about the stove. You're pretty sure you just turned the stove off, but maybe you should go and check. So maybe you get up and you go check, you come back, you realize in fact that you did turn it off. But now you're sitting back again and you're thinking, God, What's wrong with me? I knew I turned that stove off. Anyway, I'm going to get back. You know, speaking of stoves, I'm supposed to do a lot of meal prepping this week because, you know, I'm trying to be better about not just meditation, but also eating well. What am I going to cook for dinner? What am I going to cook for dinner all week? Okay, but I'm supposed to be present, so wait, wait. We're meditating now. Broccoli. Broccoli feels like something that I got in the refrigerator. Did I put any broccoli in the fridge? Did I put that in the cart? I remember thinking about it. You see where this goes. Like... <laughs> That's actually a perfectly fine meditation practice, so long as you're watching it happen. If as that's happening, you're laughing and going, ha, there it is, there's the mind doing its thing, how funny, you're meditating. It's a practice of watching, it's not a practice, it's just that over time, as you start to observe your thoughts, what a lot of meditators report is, yeah, my thoughts kind of keep going around in circles, they're not actually all that exciting, so I kind of get bored with them, and they start to slow down. But again, that's a byproduct. Much the same way as living a meaningful life has the byproduct of happiness, being curious in a meditation practice, not judging and not setting up too high of expectations about your thoughts and where they should go, has the byproduct of slower thoughts, maybe even less of them. Curiosity is also the first ingredient in many cases to creativity. 
Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this a lot in her book Big Magic. You know, for those if you're at all curious about trying to live a creative life, um, you know, so many people, according to Elizabeth Gilbert, say, "Oh, you know, write about something you're passionate about," or "What are you passionate about? Do you sculpt something that you know flares your passion?" And Gilbert is with it enough to sort of stand back and say, you know, like, passion is great, and I've definitely been caught in the thralls of it, and it's a lovely experience when it happens, but it's also not something you can control, and it's not always very reliable. If you don't find yourself in a state of passion, that doesn't mean you aren't going to be in a place to be able to create something. Maybe instead of insisting upon passion, you can simply ask yourself, is there anything that you're even a little bit curious about? She, in her book, actually said that in asking herself that question, she found she was curious about plants and about gardening. And that line of inquiry ultimately, over a long period of time, led to an entire novel about a woman who... Uh, I forget her exact title. It was a plant biologist. There's a, a name for this kind of person, and I'm not remembering it. So anyway, if you want to satisfy this final phase of sort of a cognitive need, it's a number of things that you want to meet. But ultimately, just to sort of recap, it's about being really clear. What are my real, real core values here, and how can I? How can my actions? most closely be in alignment with them. You don't have to have the answers to these things yet, but these are the kinds of questions that come up in this phase. You're going to be meeting this need every time that you learn something new, every time that you listen to a podcast that you enjoy, maybe this one, maybe not, totally up to you, but when you're engaged in something and you learn something new, you're satisfying this need. Every time you watch a TED Talk, you're satisfying this need. And once again, it's not like you can't listen to a TED Talk when you are unhealthy. That's not true at all. It's just you're not likely to be as interested in these higher level rings of thinking and discovery and the like if you don't have those levels before met. And so again, this is the first level in the realm of growth. So if you've met those four rings below and you're now playing around in cognitive needs and inquiry, you're now no longer just meeting your baseline human needs. You're moving above and beyond and starting to flirt with actualization. So very, very cool stuff, in other words. And I would say, to sort of pull all of this together, part of what we get when we start playing around with understanding and curiosity and all of that is, you know, maybe we get some of these questions answered and in so doing, there's a level of predictability that we start to get. It's not like I can predict the future, but it's sort of like, oh, that's interesting. So that's why people do that when such and such happens. Imagine, for example, if everyone in our current political climate were to start being curious with each other rather than just being so certain that they were right. What if God forbid, a Trump supporter and, oh my goodness, a Clinton supporter, or even, oh, gasp, a Bernie Sanders supporter, <laughs> were to get into a room together and say, so listen, I don't get you. Can you just explain to me what's going on in your slice of reality? Because I, I don't, I can't comprehend you and I want to be able to understand you. 
And then the two of them just had a conversation where they each expressed their needs, their wants, their desires, and their reasons for having voted for the candidate that they did. This is, and once you have that conversation, you have a sense of, oh, I can understand now. You're building a sense of compassion and there's more of a sense of predictability, like, oh, okay, I get it now. So anytime that X, Y, and Z happens, you're going to be more inclined to vote for A, B, and C person. Or, oh, interesting. So this is why people do this when that occurs. So uh, another example beyond politics would be, oh, I get it. So now I understand. For those who <laughs> think global climate change is real, <laughs> um, oh, I see. So when these gases are flying up into the atmosphere, it makes the atmosphere more permeable. And so then that allows for the earth to warm up and then all this stuff. Uh, it's like, oh, once you understand it, there's a level of predictability. Nothing, things don't seem quite as chaotic. And it's not like you can control it. It's not that level of predictability, but there's a sense of understanding. If I understand myself and to some extent understand the world around me, I can make more, or I guess, better guesses as to what the right move should be in order to live a good life. You know, if I, the more I understand, the more deliberate my actions will be, in other words. So that is more or less the end of that. But before I go, I do have a question for you. I am curious for all of you out there who may be listening. Thank you. Oh, so very much. My very, very patient uh, listeners. Have you ever found yourself in a similar position where you started to notice it's not so much that there was a specific thing that overwhelmed you. I'm not talking about, oh, there was a death in the family and then you got knocked off. I just mean this much more subtle experience of, I'm not exactly overwhelmed, but something is happening. That very subtle experience of, oh, the start of something is happening right now. What did you do when you noticed that? Do you typically listen to that subtle message saying, shh, slow down? Or do you sort of persevere and move through it? And whether or not you find yourself knocked down, how do you get back up? Personally, it took me having to sort of go back to basics and work my way back up. But I'm curious if maybe you have a different way of going about things. Love to hear from you. Um, as always, you can send me an email. You can email me at leahburkhart at healthysensitive.com. Uh, you can drop me a line through, uh, let's see, you should be able to find me through my podcast as well. And uh, yeah, love to hear from you. Let me know if you have any questions. Always be, love being able to chat in any way, shape, or form. And uh, take care. Have a wonderful week. And I promise I will be back next week to finish this conversation. No, but really though. <laughs> take care. Oh.